This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan. Joining me on the show today is Mark DePaolo. He's got a brand new book out, one that caught my eye because of its fascinating scope. It's called Fire and Snow, Climate Fiction from the Inklings to Game of Thrones. And what it is, is a broad examination of climate fantasy and science fiction from Lord of the Rings to the Narnia series, The Handmaid's Tale and Game of Thrones. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Now, this book basically tackles everything I loved. Just going through your table of contents alone, and there's Star Wars, Doctor Who, Margaret Atwood, there's Ursula K. Le Guin, there's J.R.R. Tolkien. You're speaking to me, man. Good. (laughs) And uh, it's all the stuff I grew up with and and, uh, stuff that I'm a new fan of. And I just saw all these connections and it's my way of putting it together. They may not be your versions of these franchises, but I'm hoping if you're coming in as a fan of all of them that I'll have an interesting angle at least, even if it's not one you uh, saw before or totally love. And here's the thing. They aren't my versions of the franchises, which is why this was such a great read. But first, before we get into that, talk to me about the advent of what we now refer to as cli-fi or climate fiction, you say it's Jules Verne, right? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, the Victorians invented gothic fiction as I understand it, and it branches out. So many things that we love today come from, you know, uh, Dracula and Sherlock Holmes and H. Ryder Haggard, so, you, uh, you know... The Indiana Jones imperial adventure story, the the gothic horror story, the science fiction story, and you know, uh, Verne is the more hard sci-fi speculative uh, fiction potential future. Yeah. You know, uh, Wells is a little bit more fairy tale moralist. Uh, he's inter- he's testing out some socialist ideas, but it's, it's not as science based. So Verne kind of plants that seed and. Uh, over the course of the following decades, you'll get a lot of authors that'll say, well, gee, what happens if we keep polluting? Or what happens if uh, these freedoms keep going away? Or we don't embrace stewardship values or female values more? Where are we headed? And uh, here and there, you'll have a, a landmark text. and But it's not something a lot of people were tracking until relatively recently. And, and Margaret Atwood and uh, Dan Bloom came up with the name for the genre, and it's one of those things where, in retrospect, you're, you're building the canon. And I think, even though uh, Inklings fans and Tolkien and Lewis scholars sometimes think of them as environmental writers, I don't think they're often associated with climate fiction. So this is my way of saying, yeah, they're sort of integral in the development of the genre. And you say that J.G. Ballard kind of developed that in the 1960s. Talk us through that. Well, he has um, this book, The Drowned World, and... Uh, you know, so he he'll he'll begin with the concept of well, the water levels have risen, and you know how do you react to that? How does it affect society? And uh, really teasing out the ramifications of that. And so he's a really central player. And you know, I was vaguely aware growing up uh, when I was I was pretty young when Mad Max and the Road Warrior came out. Right. And, uh, when Waterworld came out, the emphasis was on how expensive a movie it was and how. You know, here was a uh, another three-hour Kevin Costner film, and <laughs> there wasn't much talk about the plausibility of the science, or or the plausibility of the water levels rising were dismissed. 
So this is an idea that's flitted around in science fiction that I've watched all my life, but I've partly because of the way it was received often negatively. And I didn't, or, or if I'm watching Mad Max, I just think about the punk guys on the motorcycles. I'm not really thinking about, why don't they have gasoline? You know, so, and this is the time where I finally sat down and thought about it and worked on it. No, I think you're right. Actually, we don't necessarily apply cli-fi to these popular science fiction films. I mean, after reading this book of yours, I started thinking about what other movies or pieces of fiction that I could apply the cli-fi tag to. And then I, I kind of stretched a bit and I settled even on Titanic. And I was like, stray iceberg, you know, crashes into the ship and kills everybody. You know that kind of makes sense because just, <laughs> if it's broad en- if it's broad enough for the weather, natural disaster, and especially if there's some sort of hubris, you know, take on you know humans' interaction with nature, it could correct. Work. It's the unsinkable. Um, I, actually, that's very clever. And well, I, I uh, wanted to expand the canon myself because I, I was working from some lists that you know bloggers have or the Chronicle of Higher Education. I guess kept thinking, well, if these are pieces, let me add to that. And I, and it was a little difficult because sometimes I felt like I was stretching a point. But I really wanted to include, say, the recent Wonder Woman movie because her perspective was flipped from the sort of imperial um, male, uh, I, I'm not into preservation of peace and trees and and that's even Ares' justification for wanting to wipe out humanity is the pollution so that might have been a bit of a stretch but to me it fit in very much with what I was writing so I, I threw it down in the canon For me your first chapter was incredibly fascinating because I am the biggest Star Wars fan I grew up watching those movies and I constantly return to them almost on a monthly basis it is quite sad I also think that I've read everything there is to read all of those side fictions and non-fictions about Star Wars scholars writing about the philosophy of Star Wars and so on but I've never come across anything quite as detailed with regards to the role Cli-Fi plays in Star Wars, the idea that, I mean, it's there, it's right there staring at me, stormtroopers on Endor, and it goes back to very, very similar tropes about the arrogance of man in the face of nature and the native. People complain about the Ewoks because they see the marketing angle, or they're like, uh, oh, that's for kids, or teddy bears shouldn't be able to defeat stormtroopers, (laughs) so they think of it in a military perspective. And it occurs to me, you know, during the Reagan era, I don't know, whatever they would have done to depict Native peoples, it would not have stood the test of time. Even if it had been Wookiees, it might have been a little cooler, but I don't know that they would have pulled it off. Uh, but once I started thinking in terms of climate, it, the, the idea of nature fighting back against the, sort of the imperial somehow once i decided that that was at play thematically i decided i was less upset that the ewoks won i found it less implausible but there's also a cli-fi angle to darth vader which i just didn't see at all oh well him the the way he hates death is very similar to a lot of villains and works that you can interpret in, in climate fiction uh, there's a villain in the cs lewis book that hideous strength who wants to end death, uh, the Daleks and Doctor Who want to live forever. So there's this recurring motif that uh, the arrogance of the male imperial mentality is, I will make peace, I will tame everything, and anything that is individualistic, 
uh, I will stop and I will make everything part of one vast machine and my body will be made of machine parts so that I won't die and um, if I have to cut down every tree to do it, I will. If I have to kill every indigenous person who doesn't want me to despoil their planet, I will. And this could be an avatar. This could be, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interpretation of Voldemort. It, uh, there are, uh, I don't know that I see Harry Potter as, as climate fiction as a couple of folks told me they wanted me to put it in the book. But he's another villain who fears death so much he wants to abolish it. And it's this sort of idea that, the very imperial male, the, the toxic masculinity, the fascist male, wants complete control over everything and will never relinquish it, including death and nature. And and that's Vader. You know, he's mad his wife's going to die, you know, and uh, and yet he, in fighting death so much, he becomes the lord of death and a mass murderer. And, of course, that is symbolic of every real-life power broker, dictator, big male egotistical maniac that wants to take over the world, right? It's the ultimate to have power over nature. Look at me hunting these animals. Look at me chopping down these trees and building my monstrosities. And I, I think I grew up at a point, even though the most American presidents have been more conservative than I would like in retrospect, uh, you know, I had this sense as a kid that, you know, in America there was equality between men and women, you know, there's the vote, there's birth control, the civil rights movement was a success, thanks to Rosa Parks. And, um, and so when the, there would be a tyrant villain in a science fiction piece, right. uh, it seemed like World War II nostalgia, it seemed cheesy. It'd be like, oh, here's another villain who wants to take over the world. And I didn't take it particularly seriously. It's light escapist entertainment. And um, what's been interesting is as fascism has returned in real-world politics, I've taken all of these very cute 70s and 80s entertainments far more seriously and realized a lot of them were written by World War II veterans, that it wasn't always just a lazy genre trope. And then as I started to track the dialogue of all the villains and compare them to speeches of even the sanitized, mass-marketed, let's convince Generation Z and the millennials that we're cool Nazis, that it's all the dialogue from the Daleks, from Darth Vader, like it's this through line through all of this, all these works. And, and I read stuff by C.S. Lewis and Tolkien from decades ago, and they called it, they, they warned that fascists could come to America and Britain, and this would be what they would appeal to, preserving the Constitution, preserving Christianity, uh, you know, rights for decent people. It made me reassess everything. Even even before um, Trump won, I was writing the book before the results of the election came in, uh, I felt that it would be relevant even if he'd lost. Right. And it is even more relevant now that he won. Uh, and, and even these sort of benign like men's rights figures, they, they, they coach themselves and just, oh, in an age of multiculturalism, we have to can't be left behind. They're still pretty creepy, and a lot of them talk like these villains. Mark, tell me this. How did you decide what to leave in and what to leave out? Because from what you just said, it sounds like this genre and this trope can be applied to the widest possible range of speculative fiction. I mean, and you cover quite a lot of it. I mean, you cover things as geeky and obscure as The Strain, for example, which probably appeals yeah. to a small group of us, and stuff that is as widely accepted as, say, Mad Max Fury Road and Star Wars and Doctor Who. 
Doctor Who has always been my starting point for most of my projects because it, it has so many seasons. It was 37 seasons over 55 years or something, and That's I grew right. up with it. And you, what you do is you see how functionally the same plot every time he lands on a planet there's a mystery or there's a tyrant and he overthrows <laughs> it with it he doesn't then he uses the him. screwdriver he down. yes yeah some or you know but somebody else kills the villain for him because he, he doesn't really want blood on his hands you know so it's all pretty similar stuff but but what changes is you know uh gender roles fashion styles and i get to see you know how they handle environmental themes there'll be a radical environmentalist terrorist, and the doctor will defeat him, but then sort of say to the companion or the you know the brigadier, you know that terrorist was right. You guys really need to get off fossil fuels and embrace solar. You know, in the 1970s, and uh, then you'll see more and more environmental characters being the good guys, and the, the message isn't hidden behind the villain. So I start with Doctor Who because it works so well tracking these themes over time, and I branch out from there. My initial inspiration for the book was I, I was driving this huge commute um, between Oklahoma City and Weatherford, where I, between where I lived and where I taught, and I'd listen to books on tape, and I realized I'd never dove into any of the multi-book fantasy franchises because they all seemed somewhat overwhelming, and I wasn't sure how much I liked the fantasy genre. So I said, it's time I did Narnia. It's time I really did the the Game of Thrones books, not just the show. It's... You know, I never did the Silmarillion. I just did Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And I just listened to them in a row. No one's ever really done the Silmarillion. (laughs) Well, yeah. Frankly, I needed a lot of help from my friend Bill Murphy, who's a history teacher in Sunni Oswego. I'd stop frequently and say, what did I just read? And he'd explain the theology to me. So, yeah, so I, I, and it was by pure accident that I, I said, is... Is Game of Thrones rated R Narnia? This is really weird, you know. And I just kept seeing these connections, and I said, "Okay, I'll leave fantasy behind. Let me try, let me try Margaret Atwood's uh, Mad Adam trilogy." And, and I was like, wow, there's some weird C.S. Lewis resonances here. Well, I, I don't want to wander into a book project. I I just want to enjoy myself. Let me let me do Hunger Games, and then in the <laughs> books of Hunger Games. There was a, a climate set up for yeah. the horrible class injustice. I didn't know that Panem was created by climate change because they left it out of the movies. And then I was like, okay, that's it. I now have a book, you know. And um, as I was writing it, stuff, new sources kept popping up. Like I said, oh, Marvel's adapting Infinity Gauntlet. Well, most people don't know it, but in the prelude, uh, Thanos declares himself a Malthusian, but it's not in the comic proper, so no one remembers that. Now I have to mention Infinity War, you know. So, and I, I was sneaking new text in while I was doing page proofs. You know, it was kind of funny. I was like, I can sneak the Last Jedi in, ha ha, you know. And it was it was fun, but at a certain point, I had to stop and print it. Mark, let's talk about Game of Thrones, right? I mean, yeah. In particular, because for the last eight years, all we've had is winter is coming, winter is coming, winter is coming. And yet, you know, while the metaphor is being clobbered over your head, it's still not necessarily spoken about in terms of climate fantasy. And I'm wondering why that is. I mean, is it so much of a subgenre that it gets just used and enveloped inside everything else? Because winter is coming is as obvious as it gets. Yes, and apparently uh, 
George R. R. Martin said his original inspiration was just, you know, uh, there was a really horrifying winter when he was in college one year, and he always remembered it, and that's why it was in the book. And the extent to which I think he's riffing on the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, you have the witch freeze Narnia, and it needs to be thawed. There's a long winter. Um, so none of that points to, you know, oh, boy, Hurricane Sandy ruined my life, and now I want to write about the climate. Um, but what happened is, as as the show was coming out during some horrible natural disasters, people were starting to think in those terms. Uh, it was sort of like when he had Daenerys um, liberate these slave states and then declare herself uh, lord of them to make sure that the freedom for the slaves held, uh, people started saying, oh, are you commenting on George W. Bush in Iraq? And he's like, no, I, I planned this before that, you know. So um, sometimes the meaning changes and the author doesn't intend it. Um, but what's funny is he's embraced it. He, uh, at first he was resistant, and now he's like, you know, actually this works, and in fact I am worried about it now. I've seen enough. Uh, so And, you know, we, as we all know, the show has surpassed where the book's left off, and he, we don't know when he's going to finish. But the series writers are getting more and more overt, um, and they're coming up with different species of climate change denial, climate fatalism. Um, there's a, a maester who says something like, ah, this too shall pass. Every generation has an apocalypse. So he sort of sounds like somebody saying, oh, I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. We all thought it was going to be a nuke apocalypse. Now it's climate apocalypse. Everybody just needs to take antidepressants and calm down. And I feel like all that's made it into the Game of Thrones, the TV show, even more overtly than in some cases in the books. And we can't help but pay more attention and take these things seriously. I mean, authors can't help but do it, given what the world is going through now. I mean, I look at Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, and I see scenes of a women's march, and I can't help but think this is incredibly prescient. I feel like there's been a slow drip towards all of this. And part of me has been aware of it because so much of the genre fiction I've been immersed in is uh, has either a conspiracy theory element to it or is written by oppressed peoples. Like the superhero comics I read growing up were written by, you know, Jews who were worried that fascism might one day come back. And right. they kept educating me about the potential for it. And Heck, in the 80s, uh, Donald Trump was the template for two of the main villains of Marvel and DC. The Daredevil's kingpin uh, is ostensibly an honest businessman, but uh, he controls all the crime in New York. And um, Lex Luthor in Superman has his name on all the buildings in Metropolis, and he wants to become president. So that's there. So there's all these little warnings. So I was seeing trends. And I was also living in many places in America, very rural places, very urban places, and I was bouncing around. So I'd report back to my friends in New York who lived in the sophisticated bubble and say, I'm seeing some frightening trends here. And they just thought I was nuts. But it was all because of these little prophecies I was reading. Uh, and I hoped I was, um, but, I, but I found them useful all along. And what I've been telling people who were just shocked by various... Uh, victories of the, the the Steve Bannon International Coalition of crazy people um, that uh, say, well, this is these people have dealt with this before. They've seen it coming. If we read this, it'll help us at least contextualize it, if not come up with potential 
ways of responding. When you think about all of these books, I, I swear there will come a time in the near future when this is going to be required reading for schools in America, right? Because so much of these texts have been prescient, have come true to a certain extent. But I wanted to ask you, is it such a shock? Because for the most part, even when these American authors were writing about these situations, there was a sense that this couldn't happen in America, that somehow America had the systems, the checks and balances to prevent these sorts of fascisms from propagating and prevailing. And yet, given what's happening in the country right now, it's quite shocking. It's, it's hard for me to know for sure, but because I was a little young when Reagan became president. And uh, I th- at the time, he just seemed like a sweet old guy, and I didn't understand around He was Hollywood. an actor. He was Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I mean, Margaret Atwood wrote Handmaid's Tale when he was president, so she was pretty scared. And her sense was that the only reason he didn't succeed in doing all kinds of horrible things was because there were too many Democrats in office and they stopped him. Um, and, and it was too close to the, the revolutionary spirit of the 60s and 70s. And, you know, the feeling is that if they could have gotten away with it when he was president, they would have. Um, and W, with his uh, surveillance and a lot of, and his uh, elective uh, preemptive war, was pretty frightening. Um, uh, but Obama was such a breath of fresh air, and there was the hope that as horrified as huge swaths of the populace were that a black man was in the White House, that his health care plan was going to help people so much that you know, if you don't have to pay medical bills and wages go up, people will be less racist. And that was my expectation. I didn't expect such a backlash to this degree. And um, the back, and, and I, I feel like so many folks are so happy there's a white man back in the White House that they don't care what his policies are, if he's telling the truth. They're, they're just happy. And, you know, he's a famous guy who had his own reality show, and he's white. And that's and they're not even reading the news, or they're getting it through, you know, the state-sponsored propaganda of Fox News or some strange talk radio show or some of these weird podcasts, you know, the libertarian podcasts. And I don't know where they're getting their information, but they're they're completely missing everything he's actually doing. Tolkien runs throughout your book, and the shadow of Tolkien can be seen in a lot of things. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it in Mad Adam. We see it in lots of Doctor Who. We see it in The Hunger Games. We see it in Star Wars. And, 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 and we see it inspire so much of these fictions, either directly or indirectly. Talk to me about Tolkien and Cli-Fi. He is clearly deeply in love with trees. He grew up in rural <laughs> settings. With of course the, he is. Uh, he just he loves them. He he they're his friends, and he also associates them with his mother, who died very young, uh, and uh, she was um, a religious Catholic, and she was a uh, she loved she stoked in him a love of languages, and so she encouraged him to do that. And uh, when she died, uh, he he blamed her relatives who had disowned her for becoming Catholic. So he doubled down on his Catholicism, his study of languages and on his love of trees, and he associated her death with deforestation. So any time he would see trees cleared for some strip mall type thing, he would re-experience his mother's death. And he had these strange premonitions of um, sea levels rising and covering up England 
uh, around the time she died. Uh, he, well, before she died, he, he felt the sea is coming, and, it's, and the sea is the metaphor for his mom's coming death. And he, he believed in prophecy. So he was writing prophecy and stealth Catholicism and building his own creation myth for England and creating his own languages all at the same time while creating all these Middle-earth stories. And he's retelling his love affair with his wife-to-be uh, allegorically. And uh, everything he's doing is fascinating C.S. Lewis, who wants him to publish it all, and he wants to do his own riff on it. And he's imitating him right away. And Lewis is the first of many to imitate slash rip off Tolkien. And, uh, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons does it. You know, uh, there are f film adaptations of Tolkien's work. And he hates anybody who goes anywhere near his work or imitates it in any way or tries to adapt it in any way because it's so deeply personal. He can't handle that. But he's such a foundational figure that I'm glad everyone <laughs> did that. And they have interesting ways of adjusting it. You know, uh, and I feel like you know recent eco-feminist science fiction fantasy writers like you know Ursula Le Guin or Margaret Atwood increased the role of women in a sort of a Tolkien universe in an appropriate way. Yeah, so his his uh, his love of trees, his affection, his spirituality, the role of religion and ecology, all that stays even in agnostic writers and non-Christian writers and and when it jumps to science fiction. And so that's sort of what I track in the book. And that's the through line that I, in which I try to ha hold all these crazy, diverse texts together in one narrative. I don't have time to talk to you about all the other things I want to talk to you about. I mean, eco-feminism and Ursula K. Le Guin and Star Trek and Suzanne Collins. There is so much in this book. But, but I want to ask you this one thing, Mark, before I let you go, which is in reading all of these texts in your research, what did you find was one of the most obscure Cli-Fi references, but one that should have stood out? What was the thing that shocked you the most or that surprised you the most? Because the chapter on Star Trek, uh, which I think is late in your book, I think it's chapter 10, for me, yet again, it's obvious, right? So there are so many Star Trek stories that are rooted in very, very basic tropes that try to talk about the human condition. And climate change and environmentalism is something they keep going back to in every series. And yet, it's still surprising because more often than not, it blends so much into the background that I get caught up in the story more than I do the trope. And that's good writing, so that's great. Yes, it, I think the, the trick, like, like Tolkien did like, preachy writing, and he thought Lewis was too preachy. And so, in a way, if you're not preachy, it flies over people's heads, and if you're preachy, people say it's on the nose. Um, so you sort of can't win, and if you, if you make it ironic or, you know, a satire, then you might accidentally promote the values that you're attacking. <laughs> people don't get the joke. You know, so um, I think uh, once I was looking for it, I wasn't surprised to see it anywhere that I found it, because I was beginning to see it so many places. For me, what I was really feeling was I loved the works that that embraced uh, St. Francis of Assisi's love of nature and that, that sort of promoted peace. And I just I was very inspired by Jon Snow letting the wildlings in. It's the exact opposite of what we're doing in America with refugees. We're caging them. We're kicking them out. And Jon Snow in Game of Thrones is like, no. And so, and he got assassinated for it, um, which is just so beautiful. And he came back to life because he was on the right side, which is also very beautiful. 
So just the importance of even when you think good has lost, even when you think maybe it's too late to save the planet, you have to try, you have to follow John Snow's example, you have to embrace Tolkien's basic gentleness of spirit, because otherwise, you know, it's just war, it's just racism, it's just prophets above people. And that may be hippy-dippy, it may be, what do they say on the Internet, you're, you're SJW, you're a white knight, you're a social justice warrior. But what's the alternative? Just hate, you know. So, uh, I, as dark as these books were, there's always a decent person or a, a planted seed that has some hope. Even the Lorax, all the trees are dead, but there's a seed, and that's what I hold on to. And that's what I hold on to when I read the news. I look for the seeds and, and all this. Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, I love talking with you too. It's a, it's great. I've been speaking today to Mark DePaolo. His book, Fire and Snow, Climate Fiction from the Inklings to Game of Thrones, is available on Amazon.com. I urge you to go check it out. It helps you take another look, another side to the stories that we've long been obsessed with. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.